Hi, everybody. This is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the persons appearing on the program. Today on Rainbow Country, being gay, being black. That and more in episode 339, so stay tuned for Gay Talk Radio right here on Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new journey through Rainbow Country. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. And as always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host, Mark Tara. And as you can tell, I've got a little bit of laryngitis. But as they say, the show must go on. By the way, did you know that Rainbow Country originates from CIUT-FM in Toronto? Well, it does. And... Proudly in syndication on 12 outlets across Canada, from coast to coast to coast. The Yukon, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland, Ontario, even down to Buffalo, New York, and online. Well, thanks to you tuning in, streaming, downloading, but ultimately, listening. Together, we continue to build Rainbow Country into a nationally syndicated gay radio show, a number one LGBT podcast on Podomatic.com's Gay and Lesbian Chart, as well as being recognized as Canada's number two LGBT podcast on Feedspot.com. So today, a flashback to a 2019 in-person interview I did with three men, three men of color, Three men who are gay. Advertising, marketing, and PR professional, Max McDonald. Community advocate and futurist, Colin Johnson. And fashion designer and photographer, Mikey Sin. Together we talk about ethnic identity, coming out stories, black gay role models, and more. Pleasant Hour 2, music from LGBT artists, independent artists, voices that we've come to know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house, and on this episode, I'm featuring some Canadian disco and more. All that lies ahead as we start Journey 339 through Rainbow Country, and our first stop is the Rainbow Country Bookstore, with actor author and erotic provocateur, David Pesner, who reads from his memoir, Damn Shame, a memoir about desire, defiance, and show tunes. By the way, Damn Shame is available wherever you get your favorite books. We had drinks in his room a few more times, and each time I loosened up enough 
first to let him kiss me. I think I passed out for a second. Then to make out, eventually with tongues. But he knew I wasn't ready to push things forward. Though I was insane with desire whenever our lips touched, I would resist his advances when it got too involved. What I put him through. Jesus. After a week after my first seven and seven encounter with Stan, after I got particularly plowed by the alcohol, not him, we took a walk into Shenley Park. It was a frozen evening and we were both bundled up in winter coats, sweaters, shirts, hats, scarves, layer upon layer. It was too cold for anyone to be out, but we found a spot to sit away from the wind. And as we talked, we inched closer and closer until our bodies were hugging entwined, a mass of woolly layers and horny boys. I felt his hand start to wander, and I sat, a bundle of tension, as he worked that hand in an almost comical journey through that mass, first unzipping my coat, just enough to get his hand on my thick cable-knit sweater, which he lifted up so that he could get through to the button-down shirt, undoing three buttons to get through to the t-shirt underneath, which he gently tugged out of my pants, and the shock of his cold hand touching my naked flesh made me shake with a need I didn't even know I had. And I kept taking in little short bursts of air as if I was on a funhouse ride that I couldn't get off if I tried. None of my skin was exposed to the elements. I was still buried in warm layers against the cold dryness of the evening, and he just kept burrowing deeper and deeper and lower and lower, and I thought I was going to die, just die, as he began finagling open my belt so that he could undo the clasp of my pants to get to the zipper, lowering it with care, pushing away the sides of the open fly, gently rubbing his palm up and down the bulge of my hanes until he pulled down the waistband and let his index finger barely graze the tip of my rock-hard cock, and the instant he made contact, boom! My body exploded from within, and I shot, and shot, and shot, and shot, and shot, and he held me close, and I whimpered and cried and felt his hand pull away, slowly retracting back through the maze so that he could wrap his arms around me and just let me be in the ecstasy, emotion of the moment. When the storm passed, we barely said a word as I hitched up my pants and got myself presentable. And he took my hand, and we walked back to our respective dorms in total silence. When I got back to my room, I looked for any signs that it had happened. But I could find no dry jizz, nothing, from what felt like gallons of cum shooting out of me on any of the layers of clothing. It was the immaculate ejaculation. In 1984, when Vanessa Williams' penthouse photos were published and she got stripped of the Miss America crown, I was all up in arms, furious. I heard she was giving a press conference at the Sheridan Center Hotel in Midtown Manhattan, and I had to be there. I don't remember her denying, decrying, or apologizing for the posing she had done. The photos were pretty explicit. She wasn't having intercourse, but she was naked with another woman and horrors, giving and receiving tongue in places society frowned upon with someone of the same sex. In making sure my memory served me correctly, I googled the whole situation, and it turns out she was quoted as saying she regretted doing it, that young people do stupid things. However, she also said she had not committed an act of, quote, moral turpitude. 
So at least she didn't back away and say it was disgusting and awful, and she did not apologize. She said if the pageant wanted to take away her crown, which they did, so be it. She focused more on the legality of posting photos when she was promised they would never get out. She handled it well, and I believe the fact that she addressed everything head on without apology is why she continues to have a successful career, and this did not ruin her. Today, it seems that whenever a celebrity has nude pics leaked on the internet, it's a huge deal, gigantic, an incredible violation of privacy, a travesty, a crime, an emotional nightmare. I contend that, though it may be exciting for the viewer to see a celebrity in the altogether or copulating, maybe for the subject of the photos, it ain't such a big deal. Once it's out there, why are they so concerned that America, the world, is watching them naked? hard, having sex, whatever. My take is the Vanessa Williams rule. Own it. Don't apologize. Do not say the words, I'm sorry. Say, yep, that's me. I look pretty good, don't I? And if you own it, I believe they cannot come for you. My friend Steve, who worked in high-profile public relations for years, says the cardinal rule in his business is always take control of your own story prime advice. It's when you cower and apologize and put yourself on their level of screwed up morality that you get in trouble. And as I earlier noted, that screwed up morality was coming at us fast and furious, and I was done with it. I was hitting bars, bathhouses, and sex clubs, and even with the beard, I was wearing, I was getting to fuck around with the kind of guys I so desired when I was skinny and no one paid attention to me. That book of lust was getting a real workout, name after name entered and recorded for history in that book. Robbie, Lance, Jamal, and Vince. Boy, was he high maintenance. William, Jerry, Sam, and Mick. Rocky, Douglas, Dick. Oh, Dick, Dick. He wasn't Richard. He was Dick. That thing was big and really thick. He schlepped out what he had in store. It hung six inches from the floor. Erect, think of a baseball bat, and then imagine three times that. We spent our nights together trying hard to make it fit. After our third date, I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. And then misfortune ran amok, a horrifying moment, a catastrophe, the final straw. He thrust and oops, he broke my jaw. Larry, Barry, Gary, Dave, all his pubic hair he'd shave. Isai Juan and two Jose's, that was in my Latin phase. Jordan, Colin, Dirk, and Hunts. Sue, I had to try it once. Famous movie heartthrob, who? Sorry, but I can't tell you. But the year he won his Golden Globe, I met him backstage in his robe. He shook my hand without disguise. The terry cloth began to rise. He licked his lips. The next thing, boom, I'm on the couch in his dressing room. He became my bottom boy, and I was his top gun. It was risky, just impossible, but really lots of fun. I signed a contract to agree to confidentiality. I say his name, I go to jail, but I swear it's not an old cocktail. From the Book of Lust. Relax, those last two stanzas are a fantasy. Don't go sicken the lawyers on me.
Hi, I'm Saida Garrett, co-writer of Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mr. Mark Tara. Up next, being gay, being black. He works in the world of PR, fashion, writing. He is Max McDonald. Hello, Max. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's wonderful to see you again. Thank you. It's good to see you too, girl. (laughs) Fashion designer, photographer. He is Mikey Sin. Hello, Mikey Sin. Hello, Mark. Gay, black, futurist, activist. He is Colin Johnson. Hi. Hello. Identity. I'm always interested in how people identify themselves, especially when it comes to their ethnicity. For me, I don't necessarily identify as Black. I identify as multiracial. I am part Black. I am part Irish. I am part West Indian. That's me. I'm curious to know how you guys choose to identify. And Colin Johnson, how do you identify yourself okay so that question for me depends on where i am and who i'm speaking with so if i am I'm in a straight world i identify as gay um and if i am in the black community i identify as gay and somebody living with hiv i think it's important to make people understand what is crucial for my identity depending on where I am. Mm-hmm. And that does change. Um, if I'm in the HIV community, obviously I am somebody who's living with HIV, but that also works for me in the non-HIV community because I want to have those conversations with these people. So overall, I think when you final analysis, I see myself as gay first, black secondly, because I'm clearly visibly black, um, and somebody living with HIV. Mm-hmm. So and that's how I'm, that's why I do it. Yeah, Mikey Sin, how do you choose to identify yourself? I think I or how I choose to identify myself is um, in in two ways, uh, both Trinidadian, but then I was born here, so I am Canadian. But growing up, uh, especially in Parkdale, it was always a vast mix of backgrounds and cultures. So learning about that and just growing up and being young and, and having a moldable open mind, I felt I adapted to so many different cultures and I, I feel the same way now. Um, it, it just takes me back to being a kid and, uh, and, and I love learning about cultures, religion, language studies, ancient history. And this is just stuff that I, I do on my own. I don't really talk too much about. It's just, you know, for for my own learning but then i've also been able to take those interests and and cultural backgrounds and adapt it to my photography film work and max mcdonald how do you choose to identify yourself well i'm a little different than both mikey and colin because 
not looking you if you were to see me down the street you would think oh there's a six foot black man i actually don't identify as black i actually am biracial and so i have this question has gone on between like for example holly berry had this whole conversation on cnn lenny kravitz had this whole conversation on cnn and so finally i kind of settled on a very old-fashioned term and i know it's going to raise hairs but this is how i choose to identify myself i choose to identify myself as a dark-skinned mulatto Mm -hmm. because i am not black i am not white because my mother is Jamaican and my father is Scottish. And I, especially now with everything and everybody claiming that they're everything, I sit there and I say, well, this is who I am. And they say, well, that's not right. No, you cannot tell me who I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. When you call yourself this, I respect that. Mm -hmm. You have to respect how I call myself. And with that being said, answering the other part of your question, I also identify myself as a very openly gay man, very openly, like, hello, let's make a deal behind door number two. <laughs> and, you know, I've never had a problem with being openly gay. Now, other people in my life may have, but, you know, they don't count. They're not here. <laughs> it's interesting because you and I are both on the same track. When people always, growing up, people have always asked, what's your background? What's your background? What's your background? And I'm like... I'm this, that, and the other. I'm, I'm mixed. I'm multicultural and all this sort of stuff. Try when you were going out to a mall, like Mm. Yorkdale or Sherway back in the Mm eighties, and you're holding your father's hand Mm. because you're what, 10, 11 years old. And someone comes up to you and goes, are you adopted? Complete Uh, stranger comes up and goes, are you adopted? I go, not as far as I know. And they say, well, that can't be your father. He's white. Mm. And there was actually a very interesting study, just on a quick side note, about biracial children. And they actually showed a woman who, uh, a blonde haired, blue eyed woman who had kids with an African man. The kids came out black. Mm. And that through every, gen- I guess you call them genealogist, yeah. off the charts because they're going, well, they should be caramel. And so mm-hmm. now there's this whole physiology around, well, if you're a biracial child and you come out black, you know, it's just, I'm not going to get into the whole thing because that's a whole different show. But the thing is, is at the end of the day, it's who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to deny my Scottish heritage yeah. or my Jamaican heritage. And I think that's the key. For me, I am the sum of all my parts. And I think the same with yourself, mm-hmm. right? And with all of us here, we are the mm-hmm. sum of all of our parts, whether it's, you know, ethnically based or, or racially based or mm-hmm. sexually based or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about coming out. I have never Ooh, come no. out to, I have never. Girl, <laughs> I have never behind door number two. <laughs> I I have never come out to my family. Surprise, surprise! I'm kind of gay. I was born in the Caribbean. Came here when I was really young. You know, the Caribbean's known to be very homophobic. And no. and like I said, never came out to my family. I'm curious to know, Colin Johnson, did you ever come out to your family? Definitely. 
Um, and how was the response? So I actually, so I moved from Jamaica to Canada in 1972. Um, and that was when I came out as being gay. So I started to go down, downtown. And then one evening I had gone out to a very infamous bar called St. Charles. And when I got back home at about three in the morning, my father sort of, oh, had a good night. And I just looked at him and said, yeah, I was downtown at a gay bar. And he said, oh, yes, we know that. Okay. Um, yeah. That was that was that was the sum total. Okay. Um, for me, I think I was. I mean, we'd always had discussions about sexuality, mm. and you know, my parents actually did speak about sex. Really? So they were quite different in that mm. sense. Um, but I think I was concerned about how my father, being an elder Jamaican mm. man, would have accepted his firstborn mm. being gay. Mm-hmm. In turned out that my father was far more accepting than my mom, wow. um, which really surprised me. Um, when I discovered that I was HIV a positive, I it took me a couple of weeks before I actually sat my father down and told him. And his actual response was, what can we do to help? I was 25 years old and I broke down crying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that is not the normal um, root of somebody who is black and gay. Um, and I know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. I think my parents were somewhat unique. Let alone over, Caribbean. Yeah. In overall. Um, and, you know, I'm always grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, even when my father realized that I was getting very political mm-hmm. and advocating in the movement, I always had his support in his backing. So yeah. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Max McDonald, what about you? Okay. <clears throat> My coming out was very, very dynasty. <laughs> it was, it was, I, I can't, no, it was not the new dynasty, that crappy show on Netflix, the old school <laughs> dynasty. And, and basically this is what it was. I was 16 years old. I had packed two suitcases and I had them in the hall in the house. And my mother looked at it and she said, where are you going? And I said, mom, dad, I need to tell you something. And they said, and I said, they said, okay, what is it? And they said, I said, I'm gay. And I said, now I had a family friend. His name was Tom and he was gay. And my parents stopped speaking to him three weeks before I came out. So I said, okay, I better do this now and just get this out of the way. And my mother looked at me and she said, why are your suitcases packed? And I said, well, I know you two may have a problem with this, so I'm staying at the Four Seasons for a week. And my mother went, no. And I said, what? And she said, oh, honey, we know you're gay, but you're not staying at the Four Seasons for a week because if you do, we'll never get you out. And I said, (laughs) and I said, what? And they said, and I said, yes. Now, the flip side of it, just like what Colin had said, I didn't realize that that evening my mother went up to her room and she started crying for three days. Mm. Now, my mother is now my biggest supporter and I love Mm. her dearly. Mm. And my father was the one that really helped her understand where I was going. And, you know, again, I don't know what Mikey's experience was, and he'll tell you in a minute. But for some reason, when it comes to boys, West Indian mothers have such a hard time accepting it. 
it's like we've died, like a part of us. And I, and I remember going into my mother's room and saying, mom, I'm still going to have, I'm still going to get married. Oh God, that's a whole different show. <laughs> oh Lord. And then, and then I'm still going to, and I'm going to still have children, but I said, it's going to be with a man. There's going to be no changes. And, you know, and very much, I was very much the, the dynasty coming out. No word of a lie. It's like there was a hotel involved. I was going to leave the Carrington ranch, everything. And that didn't happen. You know, I basically went upstairs, threw my, you know, threw my clothes back in the closet and started, you know, started watching TV and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's funny because for me, like I said, for me, I never came out of official, officially. I, I remember having this one conversation with a friend of mine and the night before we had been, been to David Balford Park, Mm-mm. a very cruisy park. Mm-hmm. Park sex is not for me. I am not about that. <laughs> I like my amenities. I like my amenities. So I was there for my friend. I wasn't there to partake. So we're talking on the phone and my sister was listening on the extension. And then she started going, ah, he's gay. He's gay. And I'm like, Oh Lord, shit's going to hit the fan now. So then I just like put my clothes together, got dressed got out the door and came back a few hours later <laughs> and uh, never spoke of it again because families are weird well, and dynamics are weird. Can I just jump in yes. for a second? So, and I'll be interested to hear what Mikey has to say, mm-hmm. but then when I, and I don't know if Colin went through this, but when I had to come out again, when I reunited with my Jamaican family and, but the thing was, is, is that I did not, that was not the dynasty one. That was the kill bill coming out where I basically zipped up the yellow tracksuit, went in and said, I hear Batman out of any one of you and the machete you first and ask question later. <laughs> And they sat there and they went, no, 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 we love you. We love you. And I said, no, and I said, no, I don't want to hear it. And I said, end of discussion. I said, I'm gay. And if you, one word and you're missing a finger. Wow. Yeah. And that was the thing. And that was the difficult coming. Sorry. That was the difficult coming out because when you come out to your family here, it's easy when you come out to your extended family, mm. especially from when they're in the West Indies. Right. It's a whole different ball of wax. Mm. So, yeah, I'll agree with that. My um, my parents, as I say, were cool. Um, on my extended family, most of my uncles and aunts had no issue with it. And I think the conversations around the table. That one of the interesting things about my family is my family did not believe that children should not be listened to, should not be had read to speak. So everybody would be at the table and you had the right to ask a question, give an idea, give a view. And and discussions on homosexuality regarding Jamaica, I mean, my all my family was, you know, the laws need to be changed and all the rest of that and you're doing good work, Colin. I did have one particular uncle who he had issues, but I think that was because... He was a twit. <laughs> you know? I, um, my brother and myself, um, have not spoken since 1996. Oh. Um, no, it's no longer a problem. Trust me. I tried. Enough's enough. Okay. You can only try so much. Was that because of you? Because of my being gay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing is that prior to that, we had been like good friends, yeah. talked to each other. Um, but I do understand that. It's not easy for everybody to mm-hmm. accept 
certain things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just have to give them space and time. And sometimes they may never get it. Yeah. You know, but what the fuck do I care? It's your loss. <laughs> but, Mikey Sin. Yeah. What would you like to, to say about this? When I came out uh, to my mom, it was during an argument that we were having. And it was just something that I blurted out. And it was not planned. You know, it was something that I always wanted to talk about and express. But I guess just me and my mom are very similar and we like to have the last word. So I think in that one argument, I had the last word because she did not say anything after. Mm -hmm. She did cry. um, But she said she still loved me. And it's not something that we always talk about, but I will show her work that I've done. Mm -hmm. And um, so she is aware that it has influenced my work and especially seeing how hard I work Mm -hmm. in a good way. But there was stuff where I felt she always knew when I used to dance on Electric Circus, she would buy me makeup and glitter to wear on the show and watch the show and enjoy it. Um, And that was really the first time being surrounded by um, gay uh, gay people, so it gave me that comfort of of learning and um, and accepting who I am and being happy with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if if there's someone that I would tell and and they didn't like it or had a negative opinion, that's not me. That is them and their opinion mm-hmm. not mine and uh and then when it was th- after that it was coming out to f- certain close friends of mine and there were certain ones that i knew they w- you know they would take it better than others and there was uh an experience that i had with two friends and i actually had to take a shot of vodka before i said what i had to say but <laughs> i sat them down and it seemed so serious and um the way I put it, I just said, you know what, I have something to say, and I hope you understand. But if you don't, then that's fine too. And um, and then I said, and you know, it was it was a good reception. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends said they did know, but they were just waiting for me yeah. to open up and talk about it. There yeah. was no badgering. Hey, are you gay? Mm-hmm. Or trying to push me into any specific directions. Yeah. Um, and uh, me and my brother went to high school, the same high school. So that was always a thing where, you know, people talk in high school. And a friend of mine told me about a party they were at and my brother was there. And someone was saying very negative um, slanders about me. And then my brother caught on that they were actually talking about me mm-hmm. and my brother wanted to go and fight this person. And I don't condone any type of violence in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. That is not the, uh, the way to go about things, but it did put a smile on my face that he was felt protective of me. Yeah. Um, and as we all talked about, you know, within the, the black and Caribbean community, it is hard, a hard situation because, of religion um, in these countries, it's not so big in mainstream news and media um, that you kind of get used to it. Right. So it, it, it can be trickier, but then also in Asian countries and, and that too, there it's um, a hard struggle, but 
You know, as long as you're happy with who you are and what you're doing, you can say it or you don't need yeah. to. Max, you want to jump in? Oh, I want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the thing, the thing that I was just going to jump in and say, and you know what? I please call in and Mikey, please jump in on okay. this. Is, is that there is this stigma in the, in the West Indies. It doesn't matter there what is. island, mm-hmm. and it infuriates me to no end. And I will give you an example of the stigma. I was on a family vacation in the Bahamas years ago, and I was walking down a beach, and I was just minding my own business. It was it was dark. Actually, there was a straight couple having sex. That's a whole different show. Um, but the thing is, is, is that this guy, and I'll never forget it, he came up on a bike and he sat there and he said, you like men? And I, I was like 17 at the time and I go, why? Yes, I do. And he proceeded to get naked and want to have sex with me. But then when I said no... He said, he called me a Batiman and zoomed off. And the thing is, is, is that there is this two-facedness in the West Indies, where on one hand, they're sitting you calling a Batiman to your face, but then they still want to have sex with you and think that that's just okay. And I don't get it. Mm. Like, I, I'm sorry, as, as, a, as a biracial child, I don't get it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I've never been like that because yeah. I've always grown up, you know, as Mikey was talking about, you know, I've grew up in the club scene in Toronto mm-hmm. and either you were gay mm-hmm. or you weren't. And this whole thing is like a completely different ball of wax. I just don't. The whole DL culture. So, yeah. 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 And, so, and, yeah. They, and they gave it that nomenclature DL and it's so much more than that. So it's not just the Caribbean where you find that. You find that in African countries. And I think part of it comes from a couple of things. One, colonialism, because most of the laws that we have in the Caribbean and in Africa came from Britain in many ways, the sodomy laws, as we now call them. So that's part one. The second thing is religion. Um, religion is a core key part of African and Caribbean culture. I mean, you grow up in the church. You literally grow up in the church. Mm-hmm. So the concept of then you also have a what I would like to call a extreme patriarchal concepts um, where the man is dominant and the wife does her thing. So when you get all of that intermeshing with someone who's coming out as gay, for the most part, you get somebody who feels shame, they feel guilt. Any incursions that might have in homosexuality are going to be fruitive on the side, in a corner, in a backyard. You're not something you discuss. You don't talk about it openly. You don't even acknowledge that you had sex with somebody. So when you get all of this together, that's why I think we have so many and rising issues of young gay men who are committing suicide. Um, because A, the only thing that we would have used in many ways for recourse would have been the church. And you can't do that because they told you you're going to go to fucking hell. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? And I think that's why we're getting a lot of mental health issues mm-hmm. with people. Um, added to that is we lack 
positive gay role models for the most part. Positive black, black gay, gay role, models. role models. And I'm sorry, RuPaul yep. is, you know, one, but there's so many. <laughs> okay, he called him to make this thing. I have never watched RuPaul. <laughs> No, but the thing is, is that RuPaul may be one. But, you know, like, for example, I, on another show, I said, what about people who made the, who, who broke the ground for us? People like Billy Strayhorn, right. who was the first openly gay Trumpist to do Kellington. Right. You know, what about people like Josephine Baker, who was openly bisexual? You know, there were things, there were people who laid the groundwork for us. Mm-hmm. And they're just forgotten. They're forgotten. And I think that's partially due is because for the most part, the gay movement has been taken over, has been told to be white. And in many ways, that does affect the whole racism issue. Um, for example, one of the, one of the major critical issues I have is for HIV, we have blacks who were pioneers in HIV advocacy. Mm. Sadly, most of their families won't let you acknowledge that they had HIV. Mm-hmm. So these people's names and their advocacy is lost to history. Mm-hmm. And I think we find the same, I mean, we find the same thing with black politics, black, black advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at anything relating to gay rights movement, you have to look deep to find the names and listings of people who were black. And on that note, we will return after this Rainbow Country update. Hi, this is Michael Anthony Alago, music executive, photographer, author, and you are listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Hi, I'm Marie Peters, writer and director of Woman Meets Girl, an emotionally charged queer short film about the unlikely connection between two seemingly opposite women. Starring working moms Inuka Okuma as quiet and introverted Annabelle, alongside the wild and daring Tessie, played by Chelsea Russell, who recently received accolades for her performance in T.O. Live and Soul Pepper Theater's The Kink in My Hair. The film is having its world premiere at Queer Screen's 30th Mardi Gras Film Festival in Australia and the Toronto Black Film Festival, both happening on February 18th. Check out the Toronto Black Film Festival's website for details. And if you are in the Toronto area, please join us for the world premiere. Hi, I'm Agnes. My new record, Magic Still Exists, is out now. You are listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. So I want to talk about, move the conversation along and talk about a very uplifting subject. And that would be, that would be racism. Oh, no. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about racism just in general from the general community and experiences that we may have had, maybe we haven't. I don't know. We're about to find out. 
For myself, I have not experienced a lot of overt racism. I will say that. Stuff, stuff that's been said behind my back, that I don't know because mm-hmm. I can't tell. But I'll remember, I remember this one situation where it was like two, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, on the, on the bus, I lived at Martin Grove and Eglinton at the time. So on the Eglinton bus, the all night bus and <laughs> got off at Martin Grove and Eglinton and waiting to uh, cross the street. And there was uh, a pickup truck with some, you know, hot, hot, white guys in there and I thought ooh <laughs> lucky me and, and then <laughs> the accused and, and, and they, I thought lucky me I'm like hello and that's what went through my mind and the light changed and they they turned the corner and they said go back to where you come from nigger and I was like oh and so I started to cross the street when they said that and then I just like ran across the street hopped the fence got into my apartment because I mean, yes, that was my fantasy, those, those hot white guys in the pickup truck, but, and then that turned, and they, and I'm like, I'm not into that now. <laughs> so, that is an example, for me personally, of a really overt act of racism, you know, towards me, right? And I'm curious to find out any examples from you guys, and, and, Max, I'm going to throw to you. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. Uh, now, are we talking about racism as it pertains white to black or just racism in general? However you choose to interpret okay. it. Okay. So I, my family, and I have to explain this to the viewers because they won't get this where I'm going to go with this. But in a nutshell, my family, I grew up in Bermuda, which is a very, very British proper Island. They have tea time. They have polo matches. They have everything. It was a country club upbringing until I came here. Now, the thing is, is that experiencing racism for me, and I have seen the difference, and I have to make this very clear. There's a difference between when you experience racism, when you act and look typically black to when you don't. And here's what I mean. I would go into a job interview and I would have a suit and I would have, you know, I would, I would have my hair all done and, you know, I would carry the briefcase and I would look the part. Oh my God. He's, he's so qualified. We, we, we should look at him. They would have another person who would come in and he would have braids or dreads or something like that and he would have a defined West Indian accent oh no I'm sorry the position's filled and so the racism that I experienced comes from a much deep deeper hurtful place because it hurts when you are a person of when you are a person of color and they just automatically assume that that's all you are. Mm. And they don't want to hear the fact that you're biracial. They don't want to hear the fact that you probably have more education than him. And they don't want to hear the fact that you um, are a person who probably could change their mind about racism in 30 seconds or less. And and why I say the bi- I throw the biracial card is because all of a sudden – when they find out I'm half white, oh, thank God. 
we're not dealing with one of those total ones. He, you know, and, and I've seen it. I have seen people do that. I've seen people actually have that whole, Oh, thank God. You'll understand what I'm saying. Right. And, and I'm going, no, I won't because your argument is completely off base and, and based on nothing. And you don't need to be black or white to understand that. Mm. But the racism that I have experienced is just, it, it is unbelievable. And when it comes, it comes at you, it comes at me and I just go, what? <laughs> Like, you know, like, for example, I grew up in the 80s, like I came out in the 80s, and and there were people going up and down church rate yelling, fag, this, that, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. The first racism I ever experienced was a guy, and I will never forget this as long as I live. It was a, it was a beautiful sunny day, and it was on Jarvis. No, Colin, I wasn't doing that on Jarvis. And... <laughs> And what happened was, is, is that the traffic was stopped and this guy, he was driving like a, a Cadillac or something like that. And he was black and he had his black wife next to him. And I thought, great. He purposely rolled down the window and he said, I, I, I don't know if I can repeat this or not on the show, but, but it's he, it's an ba- all language show. Oh, okay. So he basically said, you fucking faggot nigger. Why don't you just, why don't you just basically die? And I'm sitting there going, excuse me? This is coming from my, this is coming from somebody who is, like, we have the same skin color. And he had this demonic look on his face. So I sat there and thank God I had some, I was going to the gym and I was actually, I had something hard. And he's now missing two taillights. (laughs) And I said, and you know, and he got, and he couldn't get out because there was another car jammed there. And so then I said, oh, you can't get out of your car. So I jumped on the back of the trunk and I smashed the back window. <laughs> and I said, you tell them when you drive up to the Cadillac dealership that a nigger faggot did that to your car. And so then, you know, but that, that's the thing. The racism that I experienced was few and far between, but when it came, it was so, it was like a humongous comet hitting you mm-hmm. and you're just going, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. But like, as Mikey said, it's about them. It's not mm-hmm. me. But you know, for the first few years of my life, it was the most hateful, hurtful thing I'd ever. I mean, cause we, we didn't have that in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, everybody was all underground about their homosexuality. We didn't have that. So when, when I came over here, it was awful. Yeah. So I, I, I think for me, um, one of the things that I grew up with, as I said, was um, just observing the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, growing up in Jamaica, that was never an issue. I mean, we were black. So although there are segments of colorism that does occur in Jamaica, um, for me, when I moved to Canada, I actually ended up moving. With my, we lived in Thornhill. Colin, can you explain colorism? Because there's people who are not going to understand it. Okay, so colorism is something that we have in the black community where the lighter shade you are, um, you tend to be seen as prettier, nicer, more um, more educated. Um, in fact, so much so that in certain countries, people actually buy bleaches to make themselves whiter. Mm. Um, it's 
I think it's fucked personally, but that's just my and opinion. And that's where the, the house slaves. <laughs> that's a house slave, feels, yes. Feels right. Slaves. slaves. Um, so all of that and concepts like mulatto, quadroon, that's where a negative mm-hmm. concept comes with the lighter shades that you were. In fact, the French created what was called the code noir, which has 64 classifications of black. And this is something most people don't know. Um, 64, class- 64 classifications. Trust me, half of them I can't even pronounce because they're in fucking French. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not trying we to We love French people though. I'm not trying to be rude. <laughs> um, so when I moved here, I, and my family ended up moving to Thornhill and this was in 1972. And honestly, Thornhill is, was then basically white. So I was the only black student in grade 13. Mm-hmm. Um, my attitude was, I didn't give a shit. I am what I was. Uh, my parents raised me to be proud of what I was. And basically, I became a major shit disturber. I didn't fit in with any cliques. I fitted in with all the cliques. Um, I got invited to all the parties, the stoners, the jocks. I love the jocks. <laughs> um, I was on the debate team. I played sports. I was on student council. So for me, I think for me, it was, there was never an issue. Um, my friends who I'm still friends with, some of them, um, the straight ones. That is. <laughs> um, so uh, that was my, I, that was how I went about it. That being said, I did also realize that there definitely were issues facing the larger community. Um, and I, like you, I saw it in so many ways. Um, there were, for example, I, you know, you had that little joke every now and then people come up with, oh, you should go to the back of the bus bullshit. I heard that on many occasions. And, you know, my, my, my reaction was, yeah, you better be happy. I'm not driving. Um, so, you, you know, so sarcasm, humor, um, that was my attitude towards it. Um, I did, you know, I have, I have seen over the years, and I mean, we have gotten to know this, especially when I, when I started going on to the gay bars downtown, that there was a major police presence. And the police usually did single out us black gays. Um, and sometimes they would be frigging rude. But when I was with my white friends, none of that shit happened. Mm. So there definitely were those issues. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Toronto is a cosmopolitan city and, you know, we are changing. Attitudes are changing. I see more interracial couples now than I have ever seen in my life. Um, for the most part, a lot of my boyfriends were white. Um, and I get feedback from that man from the black community. How come you're not dating a black, a black guy? Hello. Cause they don't ask you out. Hello. You know what I mean? Um, so these are things that I had to learn to navigate over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mikey Sin. I think within racism, it's something that, um, I experienced very young until, you know, it still happens now. Uh, growing up in Parkdale, though, it was so mixed of cultures mm. that um, I didn't feel any different than anyone else, depending on, you know, what, what their skin tone was or where they were from. But um, I think in those days, the, the word that Sometimes I would get with people saying, Oh, you're Paki. And I'm like, you know, I'm no, I'm not from Pakistan. Um, I'm from Trinidad. And, and, you know, it, it's just 
prejudging as well. You know, Trinidad is such a mix of cultures and ethnic backgrounds all meshed together. Um, and then after, but within living in Parkdale, the school that I went to, Queen Victoria Public School, really did an amazing job to um, highlight culture in their education program each week, there'd be something different. And I really feel that started molding me into an artist and wanting to discover different cultures and backgrounds. And then when I moved from there, I was probably maybe one of two colored people in the class and then was looked at very differently. And, you know, it's middle school, teenage years. So there'd be a bit of racism, but then also, People questioning my gender, being like, oh, are you a girl? Are you a guy? Because I was quite feminine looking and speaking. And in those days, I was so shy, especially moving from a school. I didn't have the voice to say much. So I I would be quiet about it and just internalizing it. And then it led to high school where it was more of a mix of people. But between grade 9 and grade 10, I was trying to find a group that I felt comfortable with, but I always would gravitate towards a mix of people. But there was a period of time where I just hung out with the Caribbean people group and the trainees would say, oh, you're whitewashed. And I was not color act colored enough to be part of them. So it was from two ends. So I'm not going to pinpoint it on one or the other. It came from, so many different sides. Um, or you're not black enough. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, do I need to act a certain way to fit in? Yeah. I don't feel like I f- had felt felt that I fit in with any yeah. anyone until um, it was the art room kids would hang out in this, the art room hallway. And I'm still friends with um, a few of them. And we have a, a strong bond. And we're all of different cultures and backgrounds. This conversation continues next. When did gay pride become just pride? I can answer that for you, and I can answer where the big turnaround was, and it's a very simple thing. Corporatism is when gay pride became pride. As soon as we got corporate sponsors, as soon as we had the approval of the corporations around us, oh my God, the beer company is going to sponsor it and they're going to give us a float and look at the telephone company is going to do something and someone else is going to do something. But drop the gay. Yeah, drop the gay and include everyone. And I always thought, why should we include everyone? This is a gay pride celebration. It is for people who are in a sexual minority. We had something that was for us to make people recognize who we are Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge that we actually existed. Award-winning playwright and author Brad Fraser reflects on some important gay history. The time frame? The 1990s. When gay pride becomes pride, with the introduction of corporate sponsorships. Bill 7. To ban discrimination in employment, government services, and housing, based on a person's sexual orientation, was up for a vote at Queen's Park. Most NDP and Liberal MPPs supported the bill, but without some progressive conservative legislators' backing, a divisive split could rack the province. Four PCs decided to break party ranks to vote with their conscience and support Bill 7. 
Cabinet Minister and MPP Dennis Timbrell did it to show solidarity for his beloved brother, the well-known drag queen, Rusty Ryan. And for me, a gay politician who was not yet out, I had to take a stand. We were known as the Gang of Four. I'm former Cabinet Minister and MPP Phil Gillies. The date, December 2nd, 1986, when LGBT rights came to Ontario. Hi, I'm Gord Depp with the Spoons. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. So let's take this fun topic of racism and expand it to the LGBT community. Let's talk about racism from within the LGBT community. Okay, so here's my story. I was at a bathhouse. I was a bathhouse Betty. I was not a whorehouse Jorge. Okay, just <laughs> It's not a bathhouse. It's a windowless Hilton. <laughs> okay, girl. <laughs> So I was there and I was, I, I was walking down the hallway and another person was coming to me, Caucasian man. And I don't exactly remember what he said to me, but it was racially charged. Like, you shouldn't be here. You don't belong here. You know, you, whatever. And I was like, okay, that just happened. That just happened here. In a bathhouse, where we're all like wearing towels and we're looking to get on with each other. That surprised me. That really surprised me. And I don't know him and he doesn't know me, but to this day, I will still see him every now and then, you know, in the gay village. (laughs) And I will always remember that encounter that I, that I had with him in the hallway. That's my experience of, you know, racism from, you know, someone that's part of the community, the LGBT community. Colin, I'm going to turn to yourself. Have you experienced anything like that Uh when it comes to (laughs) uh, the LGBT community and and racism? So I'm I'm going to take this to a higher, to a bigger level. Um, The LGBT community has always had a racist subcomponent to it. Um, in fact, years ago, we used to call them fetishes. So you used to be, I don't know if anybody here familiar with the handkerchief code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, think about what that really was. It was racist. If you were into Asians, you put on a yellow handkerchief. You're into blacks, you wear a blank handkerchief. So it was always there. It was just something that we never really spoke about. Just like you at the um, bathhouse. Um, I've definitely walked into rooms with white guys and been told, no, nope, not into your type. Mm. So it's always been there. Okay. We've now taken that to the next level where we use the internet and grinder and growler and grumper or whatever the fuck they're Um, where you see that people basically say, no, blacks, femmes or whatever. 
And this has become an accepted, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say accepted. It's done, but there is pushback on that. Um, for the most part, I never, the only time I ever really had an encounter with it was leaving a bar late at night and going through the little back alley where the parking lot is at opposite the Wellesley subway station. Mm. And they used to have a, it used to be like a little um, shelter where the staff from the orthopedic hospital used to go and sit and smoke their cigarettes. So I was in there one, I said about three in the freaking morning, having a cigarette, and four white guys came along and I thought they were passing by. And the next thing I knew, I heard fucking nigger, you get the fuck out of here. The lucky thing that saved me was that there were two empty cartons sitting in there. So they did not go home very well that night. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what we later discovered was that those same young men had gone up to 519 and attacked mm-hmm. another black person. So yes, it's always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is one of those, I, th- I think because we all, s- we view ourselves through that queer LGBTQ lens, mm-hmm. we for some reason felt that Racism shouldn't, wouldn't happen right. because we're all a minority yeah. and we should all be one loving fucking family. But the reality is that we know is that any group will find a mm-hmm. subgroup mm-hmm. that they can piss on and shit on and right. all the rest of it. Mikey said, any I, I definitely feel it existed and it still does. Um, but have you experienced anything? I don't feel that, or at least I can't think of right mm. now any personal attacks, but there, there has been times where I've questioned myself or, you know, again, you're reading on people's apps and stuff mm. and they can be really harsh about what their preference mm. is. Um, yeah, go on. Um, and then also within society, looking in magazines and TV shows and stuff and in the gay community, what was being portrayed, especially back in like, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And I remember before I started working at Fab Magazine with Max, I would flip through the magazine. I'm like, none of these people look like me. I, I can't relate to any of this. So when, um, Max pulled me into work with him, at first I was like, Oh my God, is this real? <laughs> <laughs> getting this magical opportunity. But then I was like, what am I going to do with this opportunity? And, and we both worked on bringing different backgrounds of models to like different fashion designers that are, were can, or that are Canadian, mm-hmm. but come from different backgrounds. That was a big thing we really worked on mm-hmm. to show, to bring this to light and, and that readers would be able to connect with that and see themselves mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. Max, any personal experience being the recipient of, of, you know, racism from within the LGBT oh, community? Oh, this could go on for three hours. Okay, but I'm going to keep this short. I have to first give a quick academic um, reference to my answer. So what a lot of, what a lot of people don't realize about the gay liberation movement as a whole is, is that we may be all different rainbows and colors and shades and all that stuff. And we have LGBTQ, but 
the origin, the clear cut origin of the movement was really considered a white upper class value. Because at the time in the fifties and the sixties, there was Stonewall going on. There was also the Black Panther movement. There was the Vietnam War, things like that. And when you saw anything, it was always white men. Even in adult erotica, it was white men. As Colin said, black men were brought in as fetishes. And with Mikey, he would have been brought in as a fetish back then. We have not evolved as a community from that point. Because what has happened now is, is, is that I'm going to take this back to when, very quickly, to when I came out in 1986. When I came out in 1986, we had no options but the phone lines because there was no, yes to all the millennials, there was no such thing as the internet back then. So you had to go to either manhunt or manline or something like that. And you would sit there, record a message, and you would hear, you would go like, Push three for relationships, but three, you know, for long-term relationships. You should see Mikey and Colin. They're going, yes, <laughs> yes, queen. <laughs> and so then what would happen is six for divorce. <laughs> then what would happen is, is that you would hear this. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I'm a 52 year old gay white male. I'm educated and I'm professional. Uh, I'm looking for a long-term relationship, but. I don't want any Asians, fat, femmes, blacks, or anything that's not white. Now, that was 1986. As Colin and Mikey have both said, let's take this forward 20 years. I have been on Grinder, Growler, Scruff, Man, um, what is it? Jacked, which is apparently, as we're talking about racism in the LGBTQ community, do you know that Jacked, the app, the app actually has the reputation of being where you want to find a big dicked black man? Oh. Yes. <laughs> Mikey's going, well, I'm going to deploy that. <laughs> and that's it. There are some apps that now have reputations where you go and you find your ethnic preference. However, there have been many articles that have come out lately about how when people say on their apps, like they, they, for example, some guy will say, I don't want anyone who is black or Asian or Muslim or this or that. They want some, but they won't say that they have a preference. They'll just say, well, I'm not racist. I have Muslim friends, blah, blah, blah. But I'll say to the person, Okay, but you won't stick your dick in them. Oh, well, no. It's like, for example, one guy said to me, well, I would never date someone who is Muslim. And I said, why? And they said, because I don't want halal around my Thanksgiving table. And I said, that's literally where we are today. We are still in that 1952 mindset of, and I don't, now I have to say this so that people don't get this wrong. I am not anti-porn at all. But our ideas of what is acceptable and sexual first are molded by the adult erotic industry. Because if you look at the porn back in the 80s, you never saw blacks, you never saw Asians, you never saw Middle Eastern, you saw Welcome to Ramrod Films. You, <laughs> and it was always Ryan Idol 
or it was Jeff Stryker. Mm -hmm. See, and this is the thing. We can name, and the sad thing is, as gay men, we can name all the white Porn stars. I can I can into black ones. Yeah, and there was, a, <laughs> but there was one. Sorry, but there was one, um, Bobby Blake, who was considered the biggest porn star, but because he was black, and he actually wrote a book called The Bobby Blake Story, but because he was black, he had to work so much harder to get acceptance. And he was only, again, as Colin said, brought in as a fetish. Yeah. It's like, because he's a big six foot three bodybuilder. So here's, I want to, yeah. so we're, we're talking about racism from the LGBT community mm-hmm. and we're talking about apps and we're talking about sexuality and, right. and preferences. But here's a question that I'm going to put to Colin and that is simply this. What's the difference between what I experienced where someone said, you, you, you know, racial words to me in, in a bathhouse and someone on an app saying, I prefer A, B, and C. Because one seems to be more of a preference, whereas someone is literally being racial to me. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Okay. And the, so what, uh, yeah, so the answer to that, but, but yeah. l- let me, let me just yeah. finish my thought yeah. here. I don't want us to come across as if we're, if people don't agree with us, yeah. that they're automatically racist. No. Because no. I don't subscribe to no. that. No. And so I want us to be clear about actually experiencing racism yeah. and let's be clear about things yeah. rather than painting a general brush over everything. Okay. So, so what are your thoughts? Here's the answer. Um, I okay preferences yeah uh you know anyway because we all have preferences preferences. Mm -hmm. but what it boils down to is when you straight out blankety blank refuse to go to bed with anybody of a specific would you ever sleep with a woman I have (gasps) I haven't does that does that make me hate women no or- not in the least but knowing the knowing the historical concepts that have gone over time um the 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 non-inclusion of blacks mm-hmm. um at the table um separation mm-hmm. of groups for you to just come out and say no i don't want to, to sleep with any black person or any asian person that's a bit extreme and I think that's where, that's where people are saying see, but, it is. And racist. that's, and to me, that's the point because yeah. I think that I fall in that category. Right. And I have friends that are of all ethnicities, but there are some people that I gravitate to, okay. to sleep with sexually right. and others that I don't. But it doesn't mean that me personally, I'm racist against them. It's just that sexually, I'm not attracted to them sexually. However, we have, Colin and I have a mutual friend by the name of John. And and he says, and he says this, he said, just because you are tolerated doesn't necessarily mean that you're accepted. And what that, that basically means is, is this, is, is that if you sit there and you have a certain preference, if you say no to the other ones, now, because everybody feels that they should have a right to have access to you, 
as a person or access to your sexuality, all of a sudden they can't take the rejection anymore. So that means that you're racist. That's what it is. Because what happens is, is, is that it's no longer about the rejection because everybody now is talking about how we need to be included in everything. So now it's about, well, how dare you reject me? I, I, I can't take that. That's a blow to my ego. Mm. Wait a minute. So now I'm going to brand you as racist because that makes me feel better. And that's not right. Exactly. And I'm not saying it's right, but that's what, ha- that's what it is. Yes. I agree with you on that. We can go on and go on <laughs> and go on. And here, here's something that I want to say. I think it's important for us to be able to talk about issues. We may not necessarily agree no, with things, but we talk respectfully. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I think, yes. and I think that that is what's missing in society today is the respect. Respect. Yes. Yeah. And so. that, that thing is also is not giving people the venue to have this discussion. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. as, as I said earlier, in many cases, blacks are not included in these general discussions when it comes to, to sexuality. Um, I mean, you know, Stonewall is famous, but let's remember who was that Stonewall. Um, to be honest with you, it wasn't a lot of white people. It wasn't a lot of middle-class white people. There were hustlers, there were trans artists, there were drag artists. Mm-hmm. That's who started that. Mm-hmm. And we need to remember that. Okay, don't get me wrong, there also was a middle and upper class mm-hmm. homosexual group, but they were so far removed from what was going and on. They still, and they still yeah. are. Okay. And they still are. So I, I think these are, you know, we need to have these discussions. Yeah. Yeah. A special thanks to advertising, marketing, and PR professional Max McDonald, community advocate and futurist Colin Johnson, and photographer and fashion designer, Mikey Sen. Magnus Hirschfeld made the modern homosexual. He co-founded the world's first gay rights group, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, in Berlin in 1897. But what is far more important is that he and his colleagues came up with an enormously influential concept of what same-sex desire was, what it meant, and how it fit into the wider world. If you think homosexuality is an inborn quality that cannot be changed and has a biological root, but is not an illness, and if you think gay people are a sexual minority who are born that way and who deserve legal protections just as racial minorities do, you owe those ideas to Hirschfeld and a handful of others. He was among the first to articulate that conceptual model of what it means to be gay in print in 1896. We just heard... Professor, author, and historian of queer and trans politics, Lori Marhofer, reading from Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, a sexologist, his student, and the Empire of Queer Love, their powerful new gay history book about the man who made the modern homosexual, a German physician and sexologist who died at the age of 67 in 1935. Magnus Hirschfeld. And just like that, this little gay journey through rainbow country has come to an end. 
For the full two-hour episode, simply head over to marktara.com, where everything is connected and hit the archives banner. To keep up to date with the show, check out my socials at marktara. The podcast is available on all major platforms, including audible.com and iHeartRadio. And finally, I want to take this time to thank you for taking your time to be with me. Remember, we are living in days of making dreams come true, so believe in yourself, and the world will believe in you. Hi, this is Police Constable Danielle Botno, also known as LGBT Cop, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. Mm. 